Blog Talk Radio. Reach the Pull up right there. You got it. Renegade. Why? Hey there. Uh, this is Randy Goldberg welcoming you to a very special uh, <clears throat> show of the Science and Light show. We're, we're going to be listening to a historic talk given uh, by Dr. Julie Lampin, an amazing scientist who had a near-death experience and um, amazing spiritual awakening and um, did a lot of consciousness research. This was a talk given back in 2003, very rare um, audio tape that um, we're going to be listening to. Um, so it's not readily available. It, this is a special experience to get to um, share and listen to this amazingly wise being who um, she gave this lecture uh, entitled Pre and Perry Cellular Memories. And um, you'll get to hear her describe her whole life story and um, describe all the um, amazing experiences she had. So I'll go straight to the talk. Um, sorry about the sound quality. It's um, taken from an audio cassette. And um, so we're just dealing. And this is part of archiving and historical uh, creating to switch this to the digital and send it out into the webosphere. So, so. I'd like to begin uh, with a couple of things um, because something just came to me as I went into quietness. Uh, I just spent a weekend out in Balsam, North Carolina, in, in the mountains, right at the foot of the Great Smokies. And uh, I'm a Groff certified facilitator. All of us little Groffettes, which we call ourselves, um, gathered, at least the ones that live locally, we gathered for our own breath. Uh, and I went and picked up, I'm living in Richmond, Virginia, and I went to Charlottesville to pick up another Groffette who I really didn't know a whole lot about. I knew her name was Maria, but that was about it. So I picked her up, and then we're traveling off, and, and we're halfway to Baltimore, and we stopped, pulled over at Wendy's for, for lunch, and they had the TV cameras up, and um, this was Friday. And uh, the, the bombing of Baghdad began. And Maria said, I remember growing up in Stuttgart and playing with unexploded bombs that the British had dropped. And I just reached over and, and grabbed her hand and said, and I remember growing up in London playing with unexploded bombs the Germans had dropped. And we sat there and just cried. It, it, it was the most powerful experience um, to think that you know, 50 years or whatever after, 50 years plus, after the end of that Second World War, that she and I would be sitting, going to the same place, um, sharing a view of another of another series of bombings. Just you kind of just go around. 
and looking at the maps of Iraq, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and such a rich, a rich heritage that they have. You know, Rupert Sheldrake talks about morphic resonance. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, with that term, or what that might mean, but it's almost like a an academic way of talking about ghosting. Um, the idea that where a person lives and and walks like you've all walked into this house. So you've left your morphic resonance, your signature, as you walked in this door. And whoever walks in this door in the future could bump into your signature. So it's it's sort of a preamble to ghosting, or the idea of, of ghosting. Uh, but to imagine who's being bumped into the Tigris and the Euphrates and the history that's there to be to be connected with on a, on a level of consciousness uh, has, has got to be really um, uh, well Rupert would say that <laughs> uh, Rupert would say that there's a there's a holding pattern um, I don't know that he anchors it in whether he thinks it's related to a particular wave or 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 just um, a, a resonance, a signature that just happens to be in that geographic location. It doesn't shift geographic location. So that would mean that any place left in the world that is uninhabited would have no signatures, at least no human signatures. I don't know how far he's delved into the animal kingdom as to whether they leave signatures, but certainly the human signature is pretty much coast to coast in the United States. I, I just read a, uh, an article recently that the, the luminosity, you know, that the light, that you, there used to be dark areas within the United States, and now there isn't. Everything is, even even Kansas, is has a luminosity that's less than 10%. So there's, there's no place in the United in the continental United States that is quote dark, naturally dark. It all has an interference from some luminosity from somewhere. Um, perhaps the only place that's really left that's barren is the central part of, of Australia. And um, there's not much that lives in the central part of Australia except about hundred and twenty different species of poison snake. Um, and, <laughs> and not a whole lot of anything else. Um, Okay, so that's all the sidetrack. What I wanted to do is give you a couple of minutes of, of who I am. Well, at least a little bit of a signature. And and then a little bit about, um, because when you know what my experiences have been, you'll get a little bit of a clue as to why I do what I do and how I do it and all that weird stuff. So uh, you already know I'm British. Plus, you would have known that because I talk funny. Um, but I talk funny, not necessarily because I'm British, but because I spent 15 years in northern New Jersey. And, <laughs> and I learned to put ER behind every word, like Soder, you know, Linda. Um, and then I moved down to um, Washington, D.C., and then down to Richmond, and then down to Charlotte, North Carolina. They call it Charlotte, not Charlotte, Charlotte. And so that's my geographic um Signature, but the rest of me, um, I came to this country as a polymer chemist, um, looking for the, the land of the rich and brave and free. And growing up on John Wayne movies, so I knew the streets had to be paved with gold. 
And I came here at 20 years of age back in 1964, so now you can figure out how old I am. And I landed in New York City. Uh, I came by boat to Cunard Line in Mauritania, one of her last voyages. And I landed in New York at Pier 96, um, underneath the West High Highway that had just started falling apart. Uh, so I kind of got off the boat and said, Go, Blondie, we don't even have cobblestones in London no more, or something like that. Um, <laughs> hello, come on. Uh, so uh, that was my introduction to, um, to the, uh, needless to say, I love it because I'm still here. Not only that, I got to be a citizen. So, uh, Working, I'm just doing a little bit of bio for myself. Um, working for Allied Chemical, um, I started to do polymer research and um, was well on my way up the little corporate ladder and getting to be famous and writing chapters and getting patents and all that stuff. When I had what is commonly termed a hit over the head with a cast iron skillet, um, I had an accident and a big glass desiccator with a sliding glass lid and the glass lid shattered and it shot right off my wrist and it severed my ulna artery, the ulna nerve and the tendon almost all the way through. That was not the spectacular part. The spectacular part was they shipped me off to the hospital and I died on the operating table. This was in 1972, three years before Ray Moody wrote his book about near death, but I had the classic near death experience. I'm up on the ceiling watching them all work on me, cutting my favorite sweater off my body and doing all that stuff. And then, and then I went out to the universe and, and uh, saw this pulsating light tinged with blue, getting closer. I was either getting closer or I was getting closer and we doing this. Kind of hard to tell because there's nothing to gauge where you are. Um, but it was scrumptious. It's like it's like if you were a strawberry and a vat of chocolate. It's, that appeals to all the females. I don't know quite what scrumptious would be to the to the, to the men. But it, but anyway, strawberries and chocolates. Okay. Um, it 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 um it was enormous, and I knew instantly that I was connected to everything in the world. Um, I hadn't been raised uh, with any kind of religion, with any kind of teaching. And boy, this this sort of opened up something in my body. Like I got it. I got to know more about this. Um, as as I was approaching the light, something made me turn. Planet Earth, and I was connected with a translucent ribbon, and it was over. The, the event was over. Um, but it started me on a journey that I'm still exploring. I went off and studied with a Swami Rama at the Hilton Hawaiian Institute. I learned all that biofeedback um, with a Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, did Transcendental Meditation, did the Pasta Meditation, all kinds of body somatics, um, rebirthing, um, and finally found my way to, to Stan Graf and holotropic, holotropic breathwork and transpersonal psychology. And it was in my very first experience with Stan that I didn't go back and re-experience that light and that near death, but I was in the same house, just a different room. Like the, the ambiance was the same, the texture was the same, the smell was the same. But for all intents and purposes, it was the same place. Yes, that's it. That's how I can get there. Because I knew I could get back there without dying there naturally. And I wanted to find that way. 
I don't know why I knew that, but I did. So um, I went off and got trained. Now I'm a little graphic. Uh I left LA Chemical and uh, went to Washington, D.C. I worked for a couple of years uh, in the political setting, working for equality. 1980 through 1982, and then in 1982 I went to Richmond, where I was director of Common Cause uh, for 15 years. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Common Cause, it's the government ethics, Sean Gardner's last cause, we used to call it. Government ethics, which in Virginia is a hoot. I mean, just, you know, just a thing, you know. <laughs> There's so much in the Stone Age. Um, anyway, I, th- that was great, and then I left just 97, 98, did a vision class and then went off and tried to get educated. That means a PhD program. Uh, I studied consciousness research. And part of it was to try to put that near-death experience in a context because up until that time, I had barely been able to language it. I knew what it had done. I knew how I had changed. But I couldn't language it for other people other than saying what I just shared with you, you know, that, that this happened and that happened. But but to get the full volume effect of it, uh, I struggled, and I still struggle with language. Um, I did a really long interview with the Discovery Channel. They did an, an hour show. Every once in a while, they replay it. It's funny. You know, you turn on the TV and, oh, that's me. Turn it off. Um, but uh, they kept the producer kept trying to get me to say, do I believe in life after death? And uh, I kind of didn't want to say that because that wasn't, powerful for me. What was powerful for me was I learned how to live here. Does, does that make sense? It, 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 it. I mean, I don't care about death. I, I kind of know where I'm going. I, I know because of that experience, but it let me it let me be here easier. It let me do truth-telling easier. It let me do ethics easier. I could do it with a smile on my face and you think that's ethics? Ho, ho, ho. Uh, that's accountability. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, <laughs> so it just added that, that sense of humor with me. And um, that's kind of the way it worked. In my dissertation, I talk about uh, cellular memory slash consciousness. And I use the term consciousness perhaps instead of God. And maybe it's it's just it's an academic thing. Uh, but when I found Stan Graf, it wasn't so much the experiential stuff, although that was incredibly powerful. It was also the fact that he had created a context that made it understandable for me in terms of what I was experiencing and other friends and what they were experiencing, people who had experienced alien abductions, people who experienced angels, people who experienced all kinds of things that are not of this domain. It made sense. Not only did it make sense, it made practical sense. Does that resonate with you? A practical sense rather than having someone uh, talk of an experience of angels, for example, and then simply get medicated. That's the way it happens. But you know, we needed to get educated so that you could talk about it and put it into the right words. 
would be no. My immediate reaction was to try to language a way for self-satisfaction. That that um, I could make sense of what was going on and have that context rather than have something that's simply out here. Um, it's one thing to just have a belief system. Okay, my, my grandmother talks to me all the time. My grandmother's been dead for years and years and years. And I can talk about that. But without a context, it can sound to a lot of people silly. Maybe not to you all, because you're enlightened. So, you know, I'm in the right group. But to those other folks out there um, who I really want to affect, um, then it sounds a little it sounds a little silly. So one of the things that um, I think Groff's work and the, the work of transpersonal psychologists has done is provide that context um, so that there is sensibility, sense and sensibility, <laughs> literature lovers, um, that, that allows that context to, to be created. So let me get five minutes of the context out of the way and maybe another five minutes of, of other talk, and then I'd like to open it up for just a, a discussion because I think that's the best way to, to get really deep into stuff. The, the, the context that Graph comes up with is an understanding that when we arrive here on this planet, when we get here, that we have brought with us all our cellular memory from our moms and dads and grandmas and granddads and great-great-great-great-great-grandmas and granddads all the way back. And whether you believe it's from Adam and Eve or whether you believe the new guy from Britain who now says there's seven original families, just taken all the DNA in the world and this is Eve, I think it's the book. Um, regardless of what your beliefs, whether it's one or seven, then literally we have contained within us the cellular reproductive aspects, the physical reproduction of that memory all the way back to the beginning. So we were in all the wars. We've, we've done all the pillaging and plundering. It's in us whether we were at the Crusades, whether it doesn't matter, it's whatever the history is, it's literal. So when we do past life regression, it's us. <laughs> um, and it's not only us. There is a psychic element that brings other things in as, as a potential. But for the most part, it's our memories of our moms and dads. The, the, uh, there's a Buddhist tradition called the Chud. Do you all know about the Chud? Fultram Alioni runs a, a retreat facility out in uh, Colorado, Colorado Springs. And she is the only Western woman who's been initiated in this in this church practice. It's 3,000 years old, and it's a practice that's um, primarily female in orientation. And what they do is they sit and and with the intention of becoming a vessel. So they've done all their own work plus opening up themselves for whatever the spirits of the past want to come through. 
because the understanding and the theory is that we're not going to come to transformation globally until everyone's satisfied, until every soul is satisfied. That's including all the ones that are gone. So oftentimes they go meditate in... They go meditate... Wait till I tell you this. They go meditate in cemeteries um, or where there's a lot of dead people and, and invite the souls to come through. And, and uh, oftentimes they do come through. Well, they get satisfied. It's, it's like the work that John Edward is doing. The unfinished business comes through, comes through, and it gets it, it gets taken care of. Usually, the unfinished business is some kind of emotional blockage, um, and it can be very quickly taken care of. It's either an anger or a frustration or a hurt, um, but it's usually emotionally based. I say usually because there are spiritual hang-ups in that whole psychic fabric, but for the most part. The manifestation is is the yes the manifestation is physical but nine times out of ten it's a block that's emotional there but it yeah um so that's how it comes through and and uh, they have a sultrinalione a l l i o n e sultrin t s u l t r i m sultrin um. So they go meditate in cemeteries and invite spirits of the past to come through. And I'll digress for another second. I went home a few years ago to try to find my grandparents' grave in London, and I went with my cousin. And um, we found the graveyard. It had all been dug up. The land had been sold to um, to another religious community who, who had dug up all the and there was this pile that was about 30 or 40 feet high of caskets with numbers. I mean, my, grand, my grandfather was up there. We, we found him. We, we climbed up the... Um, anyway, so it's, ooh, what's that doing up there? Uh, so my cousin and I sat and meditated for, for hours there and just invited Granddad to, to come in and... Uh, well, he was pissed off at a lot of things. <laughs> I have an illustrious family that, uh, you know, the Brits were told to sort of go west and conquer. And my family was, we just had a reconciliation march. Our family, there were 50 aunts and uncles and cousins who gathered in, in the Union of South Africa. Uh, because 100 years ago, we marched down through South Africa and stole their land and killed a lot of people and, and uh, pillaged and plundered the diamonds and sold them all. And, of course, Granddad lost all the money gambling. Um, but the cousins just had this huge wash, and at the end of it, they formally gave the territory back to the Union of South Africa just to kind of come to terms with what we had done there. Um, and so as we are digging up the, the history, we're, sort of, we're trying to do something about it as we dig it all up. But, boy, there's a lot of it. <laughs> <clears throat> um, all right, so where was I before we left? We got off track. Oh. Uh. <clears throat> yeah, I would call the one that I had. 
Yeah. Yeah. So when we come in, we bring all the parts of our physicalness with us. We bring the environment that's around our birthing dynamic. We bring whatever soul comes in at whatever time your belief system says the soul comes in. Some people believe the soul comes in at conception. Some people slightly before conception. Some people at birth. There's just a variety of different ways, but nevertheless, the soul gets here, and the soul has an impact. So you've got the physical stuff from from your your family. You've got the environment around around your birth, whether mom was happy having you, uh, whether mom had a hard time if she was physically uh, deficient in some way, nutritionally deficient. So my mom was was being attacked by bombs every night, and I, my first load load of work with the therapist was about fear that was not mine but was really close to me. I could feel it. I could feel fear right around, like saran wrap around me. And I had this experience one time where it clearly was not me, but it was my mom. It's the only time I've ever actually experienced going through the birth canal. And I went through the birth canal and I sat up and I looked right at my mom and I said, it's not my fear, it's yours. I saw the entire room where I was born and right in the corner was this, um, well, it, it looked like a, a, a suit of armor. And I couldn't figure it out. And I finally asked my aunt that. And she said, well, you were born in Danbury Palace. It was the night of St. Danbury. And that was his armor was in the corner of the room where I was born. <laughs> and I saw that in a breathwork experience, in a regressive experience. So... Ooh, this is kind of interesting. So the memory is within me. It just has to be has to be pulled up. Has to, I have to have a way of accessing that memory for myself. So I have it all. I have all the memory of the universe. We know this because otherwise you couldn't clone. You take one cell, one itty-bitty cell out of your body and can make another you. It means all the information about you is in one cell of your body, the universe. It's right within. Powerful stuff this cloning has, has provided in terms of information for us. Powerful. So we get here, we come here with our heritage, with the environment, and with the birthing trauma. And that can be pretty awesome. Uh, much of my dissertation had brought focus to the fact that I believe that during our birthing process, we actually have a near-death experience. And the, third, the third matrix, yeah, where we're after dilation and we're, we're going down there, except the C-sections, and they don't get that. Isn't that interesting? Well, there's a lot of research uh, coming. Um, I brought um, APPAH uh, newsletter which is the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. And if you all are not aware of this group, um, please help yourself um, take down internet numbers or whatever. But they have great information. This is William Emerson's work. And, um, and they're, they're doing lots of wonderful studies on, uh, on the relationship of the, the before and after. Uh, awesome. Awesome stuff. So... The, so the birthing place, then, uh, just quickly to go through it, um, 
whether whether it's conception that the soul comes in, whether it's slightly before, meaning that we have uh, we have some choice in the matter, whether we actually choose this experience. And it doesn't matter what major religion you look at, what mystical branch of the religions you look at, they all make space for this. Every single major religion's mystical branch gives you the option of understanding that you have choice in coming to Christian, Jewish, Islam, it doesn't matter. Hindu, they all do it. So it has to do with your personal understanding of whether you came here um, at conception, slightly before giving you a choice with your mom and dad, but giving you that choice on a spiritual level, not on a human level, spiritual level, soul level. It's a different set of circumstances. And this is the part of the context that I get, you can tell, get excited about. Because there's really only two places in this world. There's here and there's there. And if you're not here, you're there. There meaning you're dead. Here meaning you're alive. So that's the context. It's here and there. And And that's it. There you're in spirit form. Here you're in human. You're in humanness. And I think, for me, the idea is to get to know my spirit form over there so I can bring it back here. That was my message during, during my near-death experience, was, was I got all of this information when, quote, I was dead. Um, but to bring it back here meant that I could look at my humanness with a whole different set of understandings. I became less critical of myself. I became less critical of people around me, less judgmental. I could care less what people were doing as long as they were not interfering with other people. Um, my whole ambiance changed in terms of who I was and how I related to my community. Yes. You were going to say something? No? Oh, I thought you were going to get excited for a minute. <laughs> yes, ma'am, please. Um, you know... I use all the words because some people define, use the word spirit and spiritual, and some people use the word soul. Um, so I kind of use both. But it, is it different for you? No. No. It's the, I like the part. I like the part. In my mind, this is a, yeah, I mean, the soul is gone. Yeah. But I want to know it now. Yeah, but I want it separated. I want to know it. Thank you. Yeah. See, it's my language thing. See, yeah. I'm also dyslexic, so that's another problem I have. I do it all backwards. Yeah, so the bit about being here and being there is the only two places. Um, and here being the humanness and there being the, the soul or the spiritual domain or the I like to call it consciousness because for some reason consciousness opens it up to everybody um, and it gets rid of the religious um, problem. So I, I use the word consciousness and then it's also got a little academic twist to it so people kind of listen up when you say consciousness. Then you can use collective consciousness and collective unconsciousness and then every and then you've got all the therapists. The therapists here, by the way, I'm like, I don't want to insult anybody. <laughs> so, so there's another whole there's another whole dimension. Um,
that the spiritual part of us or the soul part of us that is in here, yes, as, as the wholeness, um, only comes out at certain times. And I think oftentimes we don't know when it does come out, when it does get expressed. And I think we'd like to think that we know it, but I don't think we do. I don't think we touch on it at all. Um, and had I not had the near-death experience where it was really clear that there were two different worlds, um, I think I still would be uh, wondering about it. But I think that's what shamans do. I think shamans are able to walk both worlds and they're able to transform and transmute themselves and go over there and get all the stuff and, and come on back and, and use it here. So the question then becomes, how can we do that? To find the ultimate answer of who we are and where our place in the universe is and what is our right-minded um, job. What what are we supposed to be doing? Where Where is our place? And then it opens wonderful dimensions about uh, what would ordinarily be called weird stuff like alien abductions, um, angels, voices. You know, it's like now we've got a domain for it because it's it's in that domain. It's in that domain. So it's right here, but we just have to access it and put it in, in a context so that other people who we might want to speak to about it can understand it. See, I think that's I think that's my bugaboo. I need to I want to write like a back page article and have everybody in Richmond understand exactly what I'm talking about. Boy, you gotta know these people in Richmond. <laughs> that's that southern that southern White House stuff. It's just it's awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Pre- and perinatal cellular memory, then, is on a variety, from a continuum. Uh, there's a memory that is our heritage, our physical human heritage from, from our moms and dads and grandmas and granddads that, that comes in, that's within us, physically. So we can inherit great-great-great-grandma's addictions and attachments, and it's all right here in the chemistry. Uh then there's a cellular memory that comes from the impaction of the birth experience. It's just sort of on the surface. So that when we actually arrive here, dependent, autonomous, but dependent, we have all these things wrapped around. We have, we have an emotional thing. We have a spiritual, soulful thing. We have a physiological, we have a mind-body-spirit dynamic that's all intertwined. I call it, we arrive here with our bags packed. And then we spend our life unpacking. It's like we are the... We are the dash between the birth date and the death date. We are living the dash. And if we unpack the socks and the underwear and the, you know, everything, if we unpack all the stuff from behind, then I do believe, that's just my personal belief, I think that all the research shows us that that is the hope for the future. That is the hope for transforming the future. Each one of us unpacked all our shit and left it. Then would we not begin to change our DNA? Studies have shown that this is now possible, that we can reverse our DNA not go back in our DNA to when we were 
apes or whatever. Did you ever see that movie, Altered State? It's a very old movie. Anybody see that? Oh, you've got to rent that. Good Lord. That is the best entertainment. Uh, this was right around the time when NASA was doing, um, NASA had already sent astronauts out to out to outer space, and when they came back, they were um, mighty troubled. Um, almost all of them, including Mitchell, had had uh, out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences. They all divorced. Um, they were basket cases emotionally. Nobody knew. Nobody knew the sensory deprivation. Yeah, ha ha. <laughs> sensory deprivation would do that. Um, but that's what these uh, astronauts were were experiencing: complete and total sensory deprivation. And in the old days, of course, they had to wear their helmets, so they couldn't touch. Now, at least, there's there's a touching ability, and there's um, they can take radios and their sound of it. But when they first went, um, there was nothing except these spaces. Uh, but what NASA did was create the sensory deprivation tanks, and that's where it came from. Um, are you familiar with sensory deprivation tanks with the salt water and you go into the tank and it's closed and it's darkness and there's no sound and 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 stuff? Well, the movie Altered States went a little bit further, and he went into his tank and he regressed into being an ape. Um, but <laughs> it's not going to win any Academy Award, but it's a really neat movie about cellular memory, about the understanding of cellular memory, that you you can regress and, and bring up the cellular memory that's that's in your body. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm a holotropic breathwork facilitator, and it's not unusual for me to see people who have been born, for example, with forceps, for forceps delivery, and to have those marks reappear on their forehead, even though they might be 50, 60, or 70 years old. Um, it comes up where there are occasions where we smell a particular pungent aroma in a particular corner of the room, come to find out that that birth had been through a certain kind of um, medication that, or a gas that would, would produce that aroma. So so I've experienced and witnessed um, all of that, and oh, I do remember when I first saw it, but everybody can see it, not just, it's not just, it's, it's physically manifest itself, it, it's not just um one person seeing an aura and the, the other person not seeing the aura. It's just the marks. You all seen forceps? You all seen forceps? They're huge. Those things weigh 15 pounds. I mean, how on earth they... No, never mind. Oh. Um, C-sections are another, another whole dimension um, because in C-sections you've missed a couple of portions of that birthing process that um, sets you up for struggle. So just very quickly to go through that birthing process from conception or slightly before up to the birthing uh, beginnings of birthing, those whole nine months, BPM-1, water, um, growth, desert island, heaven, uh, it's wonderful territory um, unless mom's in trouble. But ostensibly the archetypical Jungian collective unconscious idea of that first matrix is heaven. And then the little fetus says, yo, I want, I'm ready, I'm ripe. Ripe is the word they use. I'm ripe, I want to come. And the first thing that happens is the water breaks. <laughs> and the, the poor little fetus is slammed up against the back of the, of the cervix. The cervix is not dilated. It can't go forward. And the water's already broken. It can't go back. It's stuck. 
it's hellish, it's miserable. It's miserable for mom and it's miserable for the fetus. That's usually where saddle block and medications come in because it's pre the contractions that begin that birthing um, aspect and it's really hard, it's really painful. It doesn't last for long, it's just a few moments in comparison to the nine months. Then the cervix dilates and the little fetus can, can see a way out for resolution. So, so there's a struggle. The light at the end of the tunnel, which also I think that's the place where the little pulse rate, now we've got smart chips, smart chip technology. We can put cameras into the fetus and we can see what's happening. So the heartbeat is now up to 200, 220, 240. And when it gets to 220, you're experiencing an out-of-body experience. That's been documented by Susan Blackmore at the University of Sussex in England, where they've tried to duplicate near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences in the lab. So, And that's what I think happens right there on that third matrix. And then the little fetus pops out, completed, completed, done, journey done, with all of this incoming sensory uh, information, the light versus the noise, it's being, uh, you know, rubbed down and um, maybe sent off to the neonatal unit for for further assistance, um, whatever. But incredible incoming information. Uh, the cortex is still not myelinized. The brain is not functioning. doesn't function for nine months. Another nine months goes by before the brain gets turned on and imagery and memories begin. Um, of course, traditional medicine will say that anything before nine months of age is immaterial because this little guy up here doesn't remember it. But you remember it in your body, in your cells. You remember all that stuff. Um, and something else that, that has just come to light recently is that most of the major religions, at least the mystical branches, would have some kind of intense rituals of baptism. They used to take you to the river, and it wouldn't be a little dunking of water on your forehead. You would be held under until the little bubbles started coming out of your mouth. So you would experience another near death. And most religious texts would say you have to come the second time. You've got to come in this earth. That's fundamental language. But it's true. There's a truth to that. But the old way of baptism would provide that that other near-death experience. You've got an impaction of the soul, the light. So you know it. It's a personal knowingness. Now there's other things that branches and indigenous people do alter states of consciousness. At the times of Christ, the, uh, fasting, you know, you'd go out and, and take care of the sheep in the pasture that's, you know, five miles away. You'd take your little bottle of water, maybe a couple of sandwiches, and you'd be out there for a month, fasted for a month, and lived on water. You, too, would see your father in heaven and all your demons and anything else that went along with it. Uh, Native Americans do a 10-day uh, vision quest, um, sweat lodges. They do a sundown, which pain is another way to get out there, take these big hooks and, and hook them into their flesh and be strung up to a tree and filed in the sun. Um, and that, those are ways, those are ways of getting to God, of getting to the Creator, an out-of-body, an out-of-physical body to bring those gifts, which is why I like holotropic breath work. It just seems so tame. It doesn't a lot easier. 
just lay on the floor and breathe a little and listen to weird music. The love that I can't imagine. But even the even the monks, even the monks at Shastra. I mean, now you know the labyrinth is a is a, is a big grave. But the monks who would walk the labyrinth would take their beads. Shatra was originally Catholic, Catholic place. But say the Hail Mary or the Jesus prayer, and they'd walk the labyrinth with their beads, and they'd do it for hours and hours and hours. And if that didn't work, they'd flagellate themselves. Now, it's fascinating about flagellation because you didn't get somebody else to beat you. You had to beat yourself. So it's it's about self-inflicting to self. It's not something that someone on the outside can do for you. You have to find methods to get into this non-ordinary, I call it holotropic, state of consciousness so that you can talk to your creator. And then all of your memories, all of your memories are accessible to you. Now, there's a couple of real universal wisdoms. They will come to you and not overwhelm you. You always get given exactly what you can handle. You put out all of those wonderful wisdoms that are absolutely true will work for you. So whatever practice you happen to use, whether it's a daily meditation practice, whether it's labyrinth walking, whether it's um, regressions, whether it's, it doesn't matter what it is, fasting a couple of times a year, go off and do a vision quest or sweat rises. Um, give yourself enough time to integrate all of this information that comes back. Because one of the things that you really do need to keep in mind is that whenever we do these journeys and we travel to other places, it has to be integration time. Because it becomes very difficult for us to live in a city when our soul wants to break free. Caution there is because we could easily traumatize ourselves again. And that's that's the edge of wanting to find out more information and give ourselves enough time to let it integrate to this body. Let your dreams work you. Um, don't have to quit your job and drive west. <laughs> I had somebody in a, in a breath walk one time had had the cosmic experience. And uh, he went home and said hello to his wife, passed the car, and left. She drove west. She didn't hear from him for three months. She called me and said a number of things that I can't repeat to you. Um, but eventually, uh, and he was a high-powered attorney in Richmond, and eventually uh, he did call her. We are listening to a rare lecture given given by uh, Julie Latham, L A P H A M, and she passed away 2013 December uh, 2013. So this is a special treat, and uh, in memory of Julie Latham, and there's a link uh, on the web page. You can read her dissertation that she did, and um, that's worth looking at. So this is continuing the second. We did a couple of sessions with his wife, and uh, they are now in a retreat center in, in Middle America, uh, having the time of their lives. And she joined them out there. They sold the house and moved out there, and 
but that's just a good story. Um, but just be careful when you when you meddle and tinker in old Facebook. The other piece I want to bring up, uh, just for conversation's sake, is uh, is an area that's just beginning to get some publicity, and that's around uh, organ transplants. What were you going to ask? <laughs> <laughs> sure. some religions will not 
do organ transplants, do blood transfers because because of this, because of the mixing. And it's really interesting when I when I was doing my piled higher and deeper program, the PhD program. Uh, um, we uh, we did a literary study. Um, <laughs> call them peer days, where you have to gather and be eloquent for a day or something. Uh, well, we did this whole thing on Mary Shelley, um, who wrote Frankenstein, and it's really fascinating because she wrote that book. Well, it's seventeen hundred, eighteen hundred, shortly after Descartes. Anyway, the the question she poses in Frankenstein is, if you take portions of humans, good portions, you all see the movie. Yeah. So so it's the good parts of the people, not not the ill parts. They they took the good parts and they stitched them all together to make a creature. But the question that was posed in the book that's really not ever made it forward in the movie is does the new creature have a soul? Which is the question with cloning and why the Vatican has taken the stance that it's taken with you will not do cloning because the new creature does not have a soul. Souls come in at, you know, this does they don't come into a petri dish. <laughs> this is not this is not a soul part. But that was the question posed by Mary Shelley, which I thought was rather advanced when she wrote the book, but is very timely right now. So does it have a soul? So what happens when you mix, you know, if, if I mix part of me with you and vice versa, do, do I become you? Do you become me? It's a great sci-fi script. But Anything. We are 
We are the universe. We're unconstrained. You want to write a book with me? (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're enormous. We're so enormous. We are absolutely unlimited. And that's the other thing with the limitation. We're limited by the skin that is the barrier. And there are mystical parts of the religions, branches of the religions, that will say that the reason we are here is simply so that the soul can play and experience. This is the collect, the big S, not the little S, the big S. Or consciousness, that, that, that this domain, this domain of ours, is created only so the soul can experience what it doesn't ordinarily experience. So it's the opposite of the freedom. So here it feels intention. But we're naturally intention. When the soul is here, we're naturally intention. We can't not be because we basically want to fly. But we can't fly every minute. I mean, you can't stay stoned all your life, can you? I mean, really, you can't. We have to be here. We've got to work. We've got to, you know, make bread. We've got to, you know, we've got to do those things. And we're contained by the skin. This is the edge of us. What's that wonderful, um, wonderful poem of come to the edge, he said, come to the edge. No, 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 we're frightened, no. Come to the edge, he said. No, no, come to the edge. And they went to the edge, and he pushed them, and they flew. So our expectations are of the edge, but if we get to that edge and we jump off, um, we fly. It's whether we trust the universe or not. That's Einstein's question. Einstein said, the only question that you need to give any thought to is, is the universe friendly? And if you perceive the universe as friendly, then life is nothing but a series of adventures. But if you perceive the universe as being unfriendly, then it's a slow, step-by-step process. But if we could discard that and just say the universe, the omnipotent arms of the universe will hold us and protect us and provide everything for us, then we can fly right here. It's doable. I just want to tell you that. You don't have to do drugs to know that either. Um, All of Stan Groff's work, by the way, comes from LSD research. That's why I'm a little frivolous with doing drugs. I'm taping this, yes, it's doing drugs. Uh, Dr. Hoffman from Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, who created lysergic acid, uh, 25, uh, trying to find a way to appease women's PS syndrome. <laughs> and when they created it, they send it, they do now still, uh, to various universities throughout the world for testing. Stan was a young psychiatrist just freshly graduated in Prague and got this little box. And the first thing he did was he took it himself. And he had the cosmic experience. And then he sat there thinking, but I'm treating patients <laughs> who have the same kind of experience, but I'm giving them medications. <laughs> Something's wrong. And it changed his life. Forever, and he started to um, research 
LSD and came here whenever, whatever year, 1964, I think, uh, with just tons and tons and tons of anecdotal information from all the tests that he had overseen in Prague and uh, worked for John Hopkins University and the Maryland Psychiatric Institute by continuing those studies. And then it got out of hand because people would drop LSD on the on their way home on a Friday night and they'd go up to the top of a tall building because they became a bird and they jumped off the building because they figured they could fly and they couldn't fly. And they were squished. So then it became illegal. And it's still illegal. Uh, but what standard was find another way of getting to the same experience? And that's how holotopic breathwork came about. So you do holotopic breathwork, you have a drug experience, except you're in control of your experience. Um, but it's exactly the same. Uh, yeah, it's really simple. Um, you're usually on the floor, uh, comfortable. And uh, a little bit of a relaxation given to you, you know, like relax your toes, relax your legs, relax your belly, you know, that kind of thing. And then at the very end of that relaxation, there's just a, uh, a suggestion you breathe a little deeper, a little faster, a little deeper, a little faster. It doesn't matter if it's through the mouth, through the nose, just to get more oxygen in because it shakes up the serotonin levels and pushes up the neurotransmitters. And, um, and then you listen to a couple of hours, two to three hours worth of in, primarily indigenous music, some of which is several thousand years old. Well, the tape's not several thousand years old, but it's music. <laughs> um, <laughs> you didn't have tapes that far back. Uh, and you do that for, for two or three hours, um, and you can move around. You can, you know, could be on your mat. You can, you can do whatever. Some people lay perfectly still. Some people are moving around. Um, some people become animals, and it's really clear what kind of animal they've become. Uh, we had one woman in the training who would walk around the edge of her mat like it's just a board. She's just like a bear. Uh, and then towards the end, usually there's some kind of um, glitch in the body, like either in the back of the neck or in, the, in your lower back, wherever you normally hold tension then that tension usually amplifies. And there is a kind of a body work that we do. That's part of what the training is about. It's to either provide you support to push against or to pull on so that that energy can break free. At the same time of, um, as the glitch occurs, there's usually little hot spots, little hot spots around it, around the face, and those hot spots move. That's how you can tell that it's emotional distress is the heat in the body moves. So that was a pathology that would, you know, if you broke your arm, you know, then the pain would be in your arm and it wouldn't move. Emotional pain would move from your arm to your shoulder to the top of your head. Always goes out to the top of your head. It always works its way up. It starts down here, the pain, the, the movement will be up here. And that's it. It's a very simple, very simple process, very powerful. They think they do, but I don't know that they do. The music's awfully loud, and um, there is a void. There's a there's a, a place of the nothingness where people fall into. Um, in Buddhist tradition, the void, the, the nothingness is the everything. It's where it's where the beginning, the creation came from, the nothingness into the somethingness. Uh, so, 
What I found for people who think they're falling asleep, usually it's uh, two or three weeks later, they'll be like, I know what that is. Um, but the experiences that people have, uh, let me see if I can give you a couple of um, examples. We had a woman one time, an elder woman. She must have been in her 70s um, and came to the, to the breathwork with bangles all the way up her arms and, and dressed just divinely and hair coiffed and, um, in, I swear, a brand new um, jumpsuit that she must have purchased just for the breathwork because we say come casually dressed in sweatpants and a t-shirt that, that just must have just come off the rack. She was just immaculate. And she, she didn't move. She, she was like this the whole time. And, and both eyes just teared for two and a half hours. Tears, and uh, you know we encourage people to take off all their jewelry and just and get naked if you want to underneath your blanket. You, you just loosen up what wherever you are. But she wouldn't take anything off. All the jewels, big long earrings, and and all these bangles and rings on every finger, and she took nothing off. Just laid right there like old princess. And uh, at the end of the workshop, we do group sharing. We talk about. There's an opportunity to draw a little picture afterwards, so we talk about the picture and, and talk about the experience. And she said that, that it was amazing. All of these paperwork were coming towards her. She saw these vignettes and she saw faces, and some of the faces she recognized. They, it was her mom and her dad that had passed over, and aunts and uncles, and some people that she didn't recognize, and she thought maybe they were great 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 grandparents coming towards and coming towards her. And, um, how moving, because as they came towards her, they asked her for forgiveness. And um, so when she got through sharing, I <coughs> casually said, you know, there's a rise in Germanic energy, Germanic and Celtic energy. If either of, if any of you have Celtic ancestors or German ancestors, these two energies collectively are coming up in the world. They have been for the last five years, and it's been are just rising. Um, and I just said to her, the German energy is, is rising. And she burst into tears. And she said, well, the piece I didn't tell you was in German. And um, my uncle had the factories in, in Dresden that were taken over by the Germans. And a few weeks later, I got a letter from her. She said, I now know what I have to do with the rest of my life. I'm going to find my family. I could cry. I'm going to find my family. And uh, I've had another letter from her since, but she's in Germany and she's finding her cousins and nieces and, and nephews and just wants to bring them all back together. So that's, you know, that's just one story. Um, there was another woman who uh, had... I don't know. I, I'm just holding on to the... I Maybe, maybe... I mean, just, uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I didn't really ask. It was just it was interesting just to watch her. You know, she was just um, very serene while it was all happening. There was a woman who um, had just had a child. And uh, in her breath work, she became a dolphin and was just splashing around in the water and then gave birth to a pup, to a dolphin pup. And uh, and she said it was amazing because the pup, she couldn't see the pup. But every couple of minutes, it would bang her under, underneath on the belly, just 
that's what the, so there was another guy there was a guy in the group who was a marine biologist and said that's exactly what dolphins do and she and she had no idea and she was just so touched so touched so those are the those are the yes ma'am
wizened, 90-year-old-plus Indian woman, and she's, she's right up in my face. She, she pulls my head down. She's staring at me, you know, in, in the eyes, and she's looking and looking. And, mm, mm, it's yours. And I came up in goosebumps. I came up in goosebumps, and it's uh, been over my bed ever since. Um, and it's Tuscarora. <laughs> it's Tuscarora. And I didn't know that until I got home. It was Tuscarora. Yeah. Amazing.
great question. Uh, yeah, I don't think because I moved in that direction, and I was beginning to believe that it could be a path to the same I see everything on a continuum. I see everything on a pathway. Um, And that pathway is different for each person. So what is appealing to you might not be appealing to you or appealing to you. So it's a very individual quest that each one of us can, can participate in. Now, having said that, uh, we can get into... Um, a place of change of consciousness through dance, uh, swimming, painting, playmaking, chanting, chanting, chanting. Can't do that. You can't do chanting, chanting. Um, uh, and there are some people who can do it through journal writing if it becomes automatic in the in the writing and not in not thinking. The idea is to get out of the thinking mind. So it depends on how easily you're able to ease up on the thinking mind. Uh, I teach meditation classes, and I have students who routinely say, well, I meditate every day for 20 minutes. When am I going to find enlightenment? And I could be very brash with them and say, you know, you could meditate 24-7 for the rest of your life and not get there. Um, Because that's what gurus have done for years and generations and thousands of years, is 24-7 hanging upside down from a tree. Um, We don't do that in this Western world. Can we get there 20 minutes a day? Uh, There are spontaneous openings that occur. Um, no way, I don't believe, of deciding what universal omnipotence might open up for if we agree to journey. I think part of it is we just have to agree to journey. We just have to agree to open up to all the possibilities, and then we get given them at our own speed, at, at the way we can take it in. And then if we take that on, we go to the next step, and then we go to the next step, and the next step. So that's kind of another way of saying there's no right or wrong way. Um, every way is the right way. And that as soon as we say, yeah, I'm going to, I want to find out what this world is all about. Oh, is
it was only the kind of email that I could send. What she did was she was looking for people who had near-death experiences, whose lives had transformed. So they had a number of little human guinea pigs, and they and they hooked them all up with all the biofeedback tape and put them in virtual reality uh, gear and sent them to the edge. And they had all they they experienced all of the symptomology of a near death. They had inspiration, heightened um, serotonin levels, neurotransmitters had changed. Um, all the spots in the brain uh, had changed in their colors from the MRIs. They had all of these experiences, but they had no spiritual transformation. Well, the email that I fired off to Susan was, of course not. They knew they weren't going to die. <laughs> you don't go for a lab experiment and think you're going to die. I mean, of course not. Um, so there is something about going to that place where we surrender ourselves. We let go of this place we call who we are. We let that go in order to take on a new. And that's a very different thought process, a very different setting for us to simply relinquish who we think we are in favor of who God thinks we are, for example. I mean, supposing we've got it all wrong, how would we know unless we simply surrendered? And the notion of surrendering is a great notion, but to do it, cool. It's not so easy. It's not easy letting go of all the attachments that we have. And I prefer to use the word attachment instead of addiction. We have attachments to things, to hear, to people, to cars, to stuff. It doesn't have to be um, alcohol or, or drugs. It could be sugar. It could be caffeine. It could, could be anything. We're attached. So part of part of that dynamic of getting beyond our skin is to let go of those attachments. It's another Buddhist thing. Let go of the attachments. And then experience ourselves in a brand new way for the very first time. As if, as if we're a tabula rasa. Tabula rasa means a, a place of newness, a beginning, like we're a newborn. We just arrived here, taking our first breath, seeing light for the first time, seeing a flower for the first time. That surrendering process is something that the body does. It's, it's the autonomic nervous system, not a brain function, it's a body function. And that autonomic nervous system has to release. In 12-step work, uh, go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting and they'll, and they'll simply say, surrender. <laughs> surrender. Yeah, okay, surrender, sure. Okay, I surrender. You know, and maybe six months later, you might get an inkling of what that feels like in the body. So to come back to your question, I think there's something in relinquishing this world that mystical traditions, indigenous peoples knew how to do, but we don't know how to do, or we've forgotten how to do it but that altered state of consciousness or non-ordinary state of consciousness is where we relinquish. That to experience that 
relinquished this world. On some level, it means um, dying. It's a death of some description. It's a death of a part of us. Right? Shamans, when when Native American boys were about to become adolescents and they'd give them a spear and they'd say, go, you know, bring, bring back a buffalo and stay out there till you bring it back, was the ritual that was used from from boyhood into into adolescence, into manhood. Um, we don't do any of that. Well, that's not quite true. We have gangs and we go wake little old ladies. We do gangs. We do inner city gangs. Because we don't do any of that stuff that allows us to surrender. Because in that surrender place comes the humility. It's um it's like doing the walk from Mecca to Medina on your knees. Shirley McLean just finished that walk across Spain. It's 180 miles, I think. Um, those are the kinds of things that we would do. St. Francis and his half-sister St. Clair would be in their monastery 24-7, crying to get to Christ's consciousness for years and years and years and years until very close to the end of St. Francis' life. Got stigmata and knew he was there. But it's a long, you know, I'm not suggesting we all go to the mountaintop and live in monasteries, um, but I am saying that that relinquishing of this consciousness and this life has to be pretty intense to get us into that other place. And the thing is, if we don't listen up, if we don't do it as part of our game, then we're going to be hit with a whole bunch of things like illness or, you know, something's going to be taken away from us so we learn how to surrender. So my question was, I was old and I actually was in D.C. with all of <laughs> Okay, that's the end of the, the tape ends right there. And... Um, so it's an honor to bring you this. Um, I'm sure you are dazzled by her stories. Um, she regales with some amazing stuff. And um, so uh, feel free to um, check out my website. is randygoldberg.org or astrodc.com. And um, the show happens. Uh, usually Monday nights and um, they're all archived you can listen to even um, my info is there feel free to, to call in on a future show or to email me with any questions or comments um, um, and I'll go out with a song by Dada Nava Nivananda um, it's available on InnerSong.com uh, is from his Warriors of the Rainbow album and the song is Shanti.